Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to reader in exercise physiology and performance at St. Mary's University, Stephen Patterson. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this episode is slightly different in the fact that it's very much based on one topic, which is blood flow restriction restriction training or occlusion training. So Stephen is a world-renowned expert in this area, so it was great to get him on to discuss this topic in a lot of detail. So it's something that I'm sure is included on MSc courses um, across the across the country and across the world, but it was great to get him on to really give us an update in where this area is, where it's come from, so a little bit of history on this on this topic, to some of the research in this area, but also some real hard recommendations of how you can use this type of training in the environments and the athletes that you work with. So I'm sure you'll get tons out of this episode, um, really interesting episode around the area of blood flow restriction training with Stephen Patterson. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics, the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can, I mean, you can also schedule a demo and follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. This episode of the Pace Performance Podcast is also sponsored by iMeasureU, who are a world-leading inertial sensor and software platform which is able to quantify body movement and workload metrics in the field. So iMeasureU is used by leading biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. So iMeasureU recently released IMU Step, which is a dual sensor and app solution for lower limb load monitoring and has been used successfully by practitioners to optimize return to play for running base sports predominantly. So unlike GPS, IMU Step focuses on lower limb musculoskeletal load and works via two really small synchronized high frequency tibial worn sensors. And these sensors can quantify three dimensional force of every step an athlete takes, precise left and right limb load asymmetry and cumulative bone load. So iMeasureU was founded by leading biomechanist Dr. Tor Bazir and was acquired by Vicon last year in 2017. So iMeasureU works with military, Olympic, pro and collegiate coaches and counts the Australian Institute of Sport, uh, Philadelphia 76ers and Harvard University as some of their clients. So if you'd like to get to know a little bit more about iMeasureU, head over to the website which is iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with Stephen Patterson. 
Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I'm delighted this morning to welcome Stephen Patterson to the podcast. So welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you for coming on. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, so a little uh, recent promotion from senior lecturer to reader, but um, and congratulations on that, by the way. Um, anyone that doesn't know who you are, I just want to give us a bit of a background on yourself, um, and we're going to have a little chat around blood flow restriction, but which I know you're a bit of an expert in, so that's all good. But uh, before we get into that, like I say, a bit of background on yourself, education, and your new role at St Mary's. Okay, thanks very much for having me on. Yeah, um, I suppose like everybody else, I was had a bit of a background in playing sport when I was younger, and that was what interested me and sort of probably drove me into doing sports science as a as a degree. Um, probably not good enough to play at any decent level, so um, sort of graduated into that and did an undergraduate at Napier University in Edinburgh, um, which really sort of got the got me going with regards to the research. Um, I did a my undergraduate dissertation in carbohydrate supplementation within football and managed to get that published. And that really sort of, even though it had a, like everyone probably when you start working within university, you have a bit of an idea that you're going to go and work in elite sport. Actually, once I started to get into the research, that was where I knew I wanted to go. And then ended up doing a master's through Strathclyde in Glasgow in medicine and science and sports and exercise. And before starting a PhD, um, with Richard Ferguson at Loughborough and that PhD was in blood flow restriction training specifically working with um, both young and older individuals um, completed that about 2009 and then got a job at St Mary's working as a, an exercise physiologist and on their strength and conditioning online masters and I've been there ever since um, and we've seen the program mainly the, the masters in strength and conditioning which is where I've solely worked now um, as doing all the exercise physiology side of things um, and I also run all the dissertation modules you know we've really seen that explode quite a lot over the last number of years um, we're sitting up with, you know well over 200 students over the um, the different um, time points or the different years and so we've got a, a big a large cohort of individuals and um, me as I said I'm mainly now focused from a strength and conditioning perspective um, on that course and then researching mainly um, into blood flow restriction and ischemic preconditioning work. Nice. When did the distance learning SNC start at St Mary's? It started. Eight yeah, it started the first year so, I I moved down. So it was two thousand and nine was the very first year. Yeah. Okay. And there's over two hundred now, is there? <laughs> Approximately over. Wow. You know, it's a part. It's part time. So, um, yeah. we've probably over you know two to three years of people doing it. We yeah, we have about over two hundred, I think. Excellent. And where did the where did the interest in blood flow restriction training come from? Or was it just something you fell into with you um, before you went to St Mary's? Yeah. So as I said, it was. Um, I originally started my PhD, and we were a little bit different, but we were we had we were doing a lot of work with older um, individuals, and it originally started out by looking at warming up the muscle of um, older women to try and improve efficiency. So we used to stick little grannies into hot baths and try and improve, try to improve their efficiency. <laughs> Sounds like a class. <laughs> of their yeah. muscles. Um, but we did the yeah. first study and there wasn't really a great deal of room for growth. And because we were working with the older population, we started to look at different strategies and ideas. And 
I was reading around about a lot of different sort of topic areas and this topic of blood flow restriction had sort of picked up an interest and looking at the, the sort of applicability of getting, you know, growth and strength, but with very low loads seemed like a, a nice sort of maneuver with those older individuals who, may, who maybe wouldn't normally want to lift heavy. Um, so that's where we started and that's where it sort of it came out of there really. Mm-hmm. So what was, where was the research at, at that point? What had been done before? Gives a bit of a history lesson. Okay, so it was pretty, I'm going to say relatively new, but you know, when we were starting about 2006, 2007, um, the first paper came out about 1998 um, from Japan and that's where it originated originally, um, known as Katsu training. So they, the research was starting to slowly come across from Japan. They had their own um, journal called International Journal of Katsu Training, but it was only when it started to get into the, the normal international journals that people started to take a bit of an interest. At that stage when, when I was looking at it, there was some evidence that it was working within healthy populations, but I think people were still a little bit skeptical with regards to some of the the changes that people were reporting within their studies. So you started to get a group of individuals, mainly within the United States, um, and then, of course, within the UK as well and across Europe, um, to started to pick up a bit of an interest and started to research it, to just to get a bit of an idea of actually if what people were saying was actually true. Um, so it was pretty early days. There was definitely no structure around um things there are now with regards to the types of pressures we use, you know, the intensities, the sets and so on. Um, it was a little bit more um, wishy-washy, I would say. You know, we were using pressures up to 50% one rep max. There were some studies were coming out even higher than that, which, you know, isn't useful now. But there was just, a, it, was, it was in the early days and there was a lot of methodological studies that needed to be carried out really um, to get to where we are actually now. Mm-hmm. So where where has that come? Where, where are we now? I suppose that leads on to nicely. Where where is the research at now in terms of um, in terms of what you got your your group has, has done as well? Okay, so essentially now we're probably at a stage where we're, we've got a lot clearer with our guidelines and what specifically we're trying to do. So before. You know, even in my first study, if I look at my PhD, we were picking things like arbitrary pressures, um, and that meant everybody was using the same pressure, irrespective of the size of their limb, um, you know, how much muscle mass they had, or anything like that. Which, actually, if we think about it logically, is pretty silly in comparison to if we were doing that with a load um, on a you know on a machine or on a weight, we wouldn't be doing a similar thing. So, we're now at a stage where we're properly standardizing pressures. Um, and that has gradually progressed from um, using, as I said, an, an arbitrary pressure, bringing it up to when people were suggesting you use blood pressure and using a, you know, taking a percentage off that. Or now what we're using is what's known as limb-occlusive pressure, which is basically the, the minimal pressure that restricts flow into the muscle itself. And then we use a percentage of that. And what that does is it allows us to make sure that there's always blood flow going into the limb that we're working with. And that's really important. Um, you know, there's a lots of different names for blood flow restriction training, you know, things like occlusion training, but occlusion training implies that we're fully stopping all blood flow, which is what we're not doing. 
we're actually partially restricting the blood flow into the muscle, but we're occluding the muscle, occluding the blood flow coming out of the muscle. Therefore, we get a what's known as a blood pooling effect, and the blood sits within the the muscle itself. And it's thought that that, alongside the the metabolite buildup and the recruitment that goes on from fatigue, is what leads to some of the adaptations. So, by setting a percentage of limit clues of pressure, it means that we can now standardize pressure across the board. And that could be irrespective of, you know, if you're even using different cuffs and things like that, because what we know is that things like cuff width play a, and limb size play a big role in your limit clues of pressure. So if you've got a thinner cuff, you need a higher pressure to fully stop all blood flow. And the wider the cuff, the less pressure that's needed. And obviously there's a balance to play whenever you're trying to then do exercise with the cuff because if you've got a cuff that's too wide, it might give you a lower pressure, but actually you can't do any exercise with it because it's restrictive um, in the movement. So the the advantage of limit clues of pressure means that we can now um, even move from different cuffs if needs be. But as long as you're measuring the limit clues of pressure for that cuff, we can standardize it. And it means you're, if you're working at 80% limit clues of pressure, then that's standard between cuffs. So, so, go on, mate, sorry. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just gonna. I was gonna say, in terms of the cuffs themselves, um, where where can people go to actually get something that's gonna measure this kind of stuff? Because it's not just a band that's tied around your arm anymore. Um, you can actually go and get these things. But is is everything this? Are all the um, cuffs out there gonna do what you have just explained and what you want it to do? No, not really. Um, okay. So there's a range of different. There's a lot of range of different technology available. You can go from the from a basic um, where people are using, for example, things like knee wraps. Um, but obviously, you, you have no idea of what pressure you're actually applying. Um, and whilst it's been shown that that works within some of the literature, from my perspective, I personally don't feel it's overly safe. Um, I just believe that we're going to have, you know, you could cause accidents because individuals are just going to wrap themselves up too tight. There are guidelines that are out there. Jeremy and Lenecki's group have done a lot of good work to sort of set up those guidelines and standards. Um, and you see that more sort of in the bodybuilding world. We see a lot of people using knee wraps for that. Then you've got a range of devices which are more handheld pumps, um, which are normal sort of blood pressure type cuffs, a, lot, a little bit thinner with handheld sphigs to um, pump up the, the cuff and set the pressure. So you can get a pressure reading from them. But you would ideally need a, a Doppler of some sort to be able to put on the um, the artery to be able to measure, you know, limit clues of pressure. So in theory, you just pump up the cuff until there's no more pulse. That's your limit clues of pressure. And then you can then work at a percentage of that. And then you've got more expensive machines, which are more for clinical um, use um, Delphi um, in the United States and Canada have a system which measures things like limit clues of pressure automatically. Um, so by the hit, place, hitting the button automatically, that will measure limit clues of pressure. Um, and they're sort of approved, FDA approved within the United States. And that's what a lot of the, the elite clubs within, um, especially the NBA, the NFL and teams like that are all using those types of cuffs and devices. Mm-hmm. So let's take a bit of a step back. Why, and this is probably my fault for not bringing this up at the start, but we'll do it now. Why, and this is linked into, into the research as well, why would you use blood flow restriction training? What are the potential benefits? Okay. Um, I suppose the biggest benefit 
of blood flow restriction training is the ability to achieve sort of strength and hypertrophy adaptations with very low loads. So we're talking about loads generally within 20 to 30% of your one repetition max. And normally in order to get um, stronger or increase muscle mass, we would tend to use loads sort of over 70% plus one repetition max. So we're able to to use these lower loads and achieve similar gains. Now, the research is a little bit mixed. It's it's pretty confident that the the differences between blood flow restriction and heavy loading are are basically the same for muscle hypertrophy at those low loads. So if you're working at 30% and then say 70 or 80%, we will get similar hypertrophy gains. The the evidence between for strength is a little bit different. If you look at most of the recent meta-analysis, and we've done one in British Journal of Sports Medicine um, a few years ago, it demonstrated that heavy loading is slightly better for strength adaptations than blood flow restriction. However, in more recent times, and since people have started to standardize the pressures based off percentages of limit of pressure, we're starting to see that sort of gap narrow and almost, I can't definitively say that we're not seeing differences, but in the last, in our last two or three studies and in a number of studies that have been, that have come out the last year or so, you're starting to see similar patterns between, um, for strength adaptations between blood flow restriction um, and heavy load training when we're using pressures up around 60 to 80% of your limb occlusive pressure. So that standardization of those pressures has really made a difference because all of a sudden people are now working to a similar standard, whereas previous studies you probably had a bit of a um, a mismatch. So for those guys who, for people who are mainly load compromised, it's a really, really attractive proposition because, you know, we have a situation where individuals cannot lift heavy and this sort of leads into a, a nice technique that allows you to still get those strength and hypertrophy gains. I think one thing that I sort of always try to say about blood flow restriction, and I'm sure sort of anybody who's listening who's used it before, you know, it's not a, it, it, this isn't some sort of device and rehab tool that's the best thing you've ever heard of. It's just another tool in someone's arsenal. You know, it really isn't, a, it's, it's useful, it works, the evidence is pretty clear in that. It's just about thinking about why and when you're going to use it. Um, and I think the, you know, we're pretty confident, especially in early stage rehab, we think we're getting, you know, really good gains and really good benefits and that's where it is being used. But, you know, at no stage am I saying this is a substitute for heavy loading. You know, it has to be, it's used like other sort of training modalities are used at certain times. So along that lines, where what are people doing? How are people using it out there? I know that you, you did some, um, you mentioned the paper that we'll talk about, but yeah, what are people doing in the field using blood flow restriction training? Yeah, so I think at the minute, mainly, you know, apart, outside of the research side of things, people are mainly using it for rehab. That's, you know, that's its biggest sort of, you know, target really and biggest sort of opportunity. So it is being used heavy in rehabilitation, especially, you know, if you go to the United States, as I said, there isn't an NBA, NFL, NHL team, college team that isn't using it in, at some, in some way as an early stage rehab tool. Um, within, you know, the UK and, and Europe, again, I know it is being used. Um, there's still a little bit of skepticism, I think, at times, 
but um, it is definitely being used to, to a greater extent these days. So people are using it in order to help individuals whenever, as I said, they are load compromised. So, you know, some of the people like Ben Rosenblatt was doing, were doing work, you know, back in the, in the late 2000s at the intensive rehab unit with the British Olympic Association. Um, we've been doing stuff within the military. So there, there's lots going on in that regard. Um, and, you know, they're, they're using it to help bring them back to a stage where they can lift heavy again. And, and, you know, that's really probably what it is a lot of the time is that transition from what we would normally do in a rehab setting where we're using sort of a lot of physical therapy, a lot of sort of therabands, a lot of light loads. We're actually saying, well, hold on. One of the biggest problems that we have from a rehab perspective is we lose a lot of muscle mass and strength when we're injured. And actually, this is a tool that can get strength and muscle mass back quite quickly and actually when we normally wouldn't do so. Therefore, potentially giving us more time down the line to focus on other aspects of the rehab process. And that's where I see it sort of fitting quite well. Why do you think it's utilised more in the US than it is in UK and Europe? I think there's... um, there's a, there's a group in the in the states. Johnny Owens in the states has done a lot of um, used to work in the military over there, and he's been working with Delphi, and they've been doing a lot of education and a lot of um, sort of courses over there. And I think that's what sort of picked up an interest. Um, one of the other things is the device, the Delphi device, is FDA approved, and to use a blood flow restriction device in the in the United States, you have to it has to be FDA approved. So that's led to a lot of um, you know, them using that device itself. So I think it's just, it's gathered a lot of sort of information um, and a lot of sort of interest from people. And people then see it works. I think Johnny started working with the Houston Texans originally. And look, I think if we're honest, the minute some elite sport teams start to see things working, then they, other teams also jump in the bandwagon and then other people follow suit. So I think that's what you're seeing. I think, you know, it was, it's a slow process. Like everything you're seeing, some teams take it on board. Other teams are then seeing these these ones use it. They're seeing it's working for them and therefore they're saying, yeah, let's go with it. And I think also in the States, it's been, it's been picked up quite a lot by the surgeons as well. And they're sort of suggesting that their patients use it as a rehab tool in the early stage. And it's, that's obviously then going to mean it's, there's more chance of it being picked up. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Stephen. Hope you enjoyed part one. So in part two, a really interesting area around blood flow restriction training for recovery. So as well as that, we discuss uh, adoption in the US and we discuss right at the end some real hard recommendations for people to use in the, um, in the use of blood flow restriction training with the athletes and in the environments that you work in. But just before we do get into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So Fatigue Science have exclusive access of the SAFT model, which is an algorithm developed by the US Army. And if you listen to my episode with Ian Dunican, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So the SAFT model analyzes a number of different factors in your sleep history to predict your fatigue for the day ahead. So the alertness score indicates fatigue predicted 
effects on your reaction time, your lapse index, your mental output, all, all things that are obviously essential for the performance that you're going to undertake that day. So as you can tell, it is much more than a sleep tracking device. However, it is a sleep tracking device. But not only does it track sleep, um, it considers the time you went to sleep, how well you slept, how much sleep debt you have, and even your local sunrise and sunset times. So a really impressive bit of kit is the ready band from Fatigue Science. So if you are interested in getting to know a little bit more about Fatigue Science, head over to their website, uh, fatiguesigns.com but also follow them on Twitter at Fatigue Science. So also sponsoring today's podcast is St. Mary's University. So St. Mary's is internationally renowned as a leader in strength and conditioning education, and it was the first UK institution to offer an undergraduate degree in strength and conditioning. And its master's programme, which I have been through personally and would highly recommend, was the first part-time uh, distance learning strength and conditioning course in the UK. And it's the emphasis on the development of coaching skills and relevance of theory to practice which makes St Mary's stand out from the other courses that are out there. So both uh, undergraduate and postgraduate courses are delivered in the purpose-built state-of-the-art performance education centre and anyone that's been to St Mary's will know what a fantastic uh, facility that is and is taught by staff that are highly experienced coaches and expert sports scientists. And one thing that students are really on the lookout for now is universities' links with uh, professional sport, and that's definitely something that St Mary's has with their links with multiple football clubs across London in Chelsea, Crystal Palace, Fulham, but also uh, London Irish in rugby and Sutton Tennis Academy. They also embed students within the Royal Ballet Company and Royal Ballet, Royal Ballet School in London, and this obviously helps students top saying uh, necessary coaching experience to maximize their chances of gaining employment post-graduation. So in addition to the strength and conditioning courses, they offer both undergraduate and postgraduate programs in physiology and sports rehab. But if you're interested in getting to know more about the course at St. Mary's, make sure you visit their website, uh, which is stmary's.ac.uk forward slash courses. Is there any difference between limbs as in upper body versus lower body results in terms of strength and size? Not particularly, no. Um, okay. The only difference would be the actual pressures you potentially need to do. Yeah. Um, so, for example, in the lower okay. body, we tend to see that we maybe need to use a slightly higher pressure. So we tend to use between 60 and 80% of your limb occlusive pressure in the lower body. And in the upper body, Jeremy Linecki did some nice work where they demonstrated there was no differences between sort of 40 to 80%. So you can get away with using slightly lower pressures in the upper body. Um, but with regard to the adaptations, no, the adaptations are pretty similar across the board, whether it's it's lower or upper, you know, you're still susceptible to, you know, significant gains in strength and mass. Hmm. So what, where do you think, so in terms of the research, moving on from here where do you think it's where do you think it's heading obviously you say we're at a point where we're actually making recommendations where, do, where does it go from here i think there's, there's there's still lots of scope you know there's there's lots of scope around the mechanisms you know there's, there's we still aren't fully aware of exactly what's happening um obviously the one of the problems with that it costs a lot of money to do these mechanistic studies um so there, there's a lot of mechanistic work potentially still needs to be to be done to really elucidate what's happening um, I think you're going to see more around the clinical side. So I think 
from you know what I know at the minute and the amount of studies that are currently being done clinically, you know, you're talking at least another twenty or thirty studies that are currently registered. Um, when we did um, our meta analysis of Luke Hughes, my PhD student, um, we only had about I think there was twenty studies that were applicable for um, clinical um, clinical studies for our meta analysis and blood flow restriction training, and essentially we were able to see within that that even out of that, I think twelve were people who had sarcopenia, i.e., older individuals. So. There was very, very limited information. Even though it's a, we know that it would work with rehab. We know it, it works from a, you know, a case by case basis. The evidence from a research side of things wasn't necessarily there. We did this meta analysis, and that was just, you know, a year and a half ago. Since that time, there's been another probably ten published papers which are showing really good benefits in the clinical side of things. So, you know, we are really at the early stages of the evidence coming out and demonstrating why things are, are working. Um, within that regard. So I think that's probably the biggest area it's going to go down. There are other avenues with regards to blood flow restriction, but it would be more, you know, for example, we've done some work with um, just the cuff on its own. So using like passive blood flow, blood flow restriction or ischemic preconditioning. And that's, you know, we've done stuff around the idea of performance enhancement, recovery, um, and even adaptations just for using the cough without exercise. So there's a lot of there's a lot of work in that avenue where I think there's there's plenty of scope and potential, again, for both rehab and athletic performance. Interesting around the recovery. So what, what have you done with the just using the cuff itself without any exercise? Yeah, so we there was a study that came out a few years ago, um, Bevan et al., and they demonstrated that potentially they they seen small to moderate effects of using the the cuff alone as a to help people recover following sort of just a normal training session, and they demonstrated some evidence that it, it would potentially be beneficial. So we took we took an approach that we wanted to really look at um, a normal sort of recovery type protocol. So we we used a muscle damage protocol, and we we decided to get individuals to do drop jumps off a 60 centimeter box. So they, they did a hundred drop jumps to elicit um, muscle damage. And then after the, the box jumps, we then had them perform um, the passive blood flow restriction or the ischemic post conditioning, where they put the cuff on, inflated it to 220 millimeters of mercury. Um, and they did this for five minutes. And then they released the cuff for five minutes and they repeated that for a total of three times. And essentially what we found with that was, and then there was also a control group who just did a, a light pressure. And we demonstrated that things like muscle force, you know, um, creatine kinase, soreness, swelling was all reduced um, at least 24 to 48 hours earlier than it would have been if we hadn't have used the blood flow restriction. So we, we were able to demonstrate in, a, in, a, in an extreme model, of course, that that was that there's a potential there from a recovery perspective we also looked at it before the actual damage so we did an ischemic preconditioning and we had another group who just you know sort of had the cuff on before they did the damage itself because ischemic preconditioning um in the, cl the clinical world has been shown to prevent damage from surgery and from any time you you go through a period of um, full restriction for a long period of time and it prevents ischemic reperfusion injury. But actually what we found with that was while it 
it had an effect on and improved the markers of recoveries, you know, like swelling and soreness and creatine kinase. It actually didn't help with function, so it didn't actually improve force production. So we we sort of came away from that thinking, well, actually, it's the it's the post occlusion is the sort of the optimal time frame. And since then, there's, we've done a another couple of studies which which haven't been published yet, um, but we're just trying to play about a little bit with um, the different things we can do. So we've got some nice work where potentially, if we pour, perform repeated bouts of the ischemic preconditioning, it can help with the recovery down the line. So there's almost some adaptation happening within the muscle, which is potentially helping with the recovery process. So. It's early days, and obviously those those studies are in extreme, you know, muscle damage protocols. But I think there is potentially some scope there. Um, I guess the argument just is, from a recovery perspective, I think you have to weigh up how much time you potentially have to do recovery, because you know if we're doing five minutes on, five minutes off, three times, that's thirty minutes for a recovery protocol, and I think. If we look at, you know, how quick would it be to jump in a contrast therapy or other forms of recovery, I think you just need to, as a practitioner, you need to work out whether or not this is something that might work or not. And we have to do the research really to find out whether we can get away with doing shorter time frames also. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the, I know you said the thing that was happening in the research, what's to come is actually the mechanistic uh, reasons by why these things are happening. But where where is that at the minute? And this is to delve into your exercise physiology deep into that 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 area why do we think certain things are happening um mechanistically okay well there's a number of of mechanisms that are sort of proposed um i think probably the there's two main areas there's one around jeremy lenecki's done some work on um cell swelling and this idea that um there is um, a swelling effect that happens with blood flow restriction because we get that blood pooling effect. And there's some evidence um, that suggests that if a, a cell is swollen, um, it, it can lead to increased protein synthesis or prevention of protein breakdown. So there's, there's that potential, and it, it certainly makes sense. Um, it's a little bit tricky to really sort of ever prove or disprove. Um, but I think it's it's scope, there's scope there. Whether or not it's the main driver, though, um, I would debate that might be more to do with the protein breakdown side of things rather than the protein synthesis or the growth side of things. Um, if we're looking at what we're seeing whenever we exercise, you know, there's obviously a buildup of metabolites that are, you know that happen within the muscle. Remember, the cuff is inflated and it's inflated throughout the actual exercise. So even during the recovery periods. So what we end up having is we we create a local hypoxia within the muscle itself. And that then induces fatigue to a greater extent. And essentially what happens is we start to recruit our faster twitch um, motor fibers um, and motor neurons. And essentially then that's what's leading to the growth. So um, we... We're, you know, if you look at EMG studies, we're we're lifting similar. There's similar EMG output with a, a low load with blood flow restriction as to some heavier loads. So that would suggest that from a recruitment perspective, um, the fatigue and the hypoxia and the metabolites are leading to us the fact that we then have to let um use those faster twitch fibers to move that same low load. So that's where you're sort of getting the equivalence, and that's probably the the main driver behind. The sort of adaptations that we're seeing 
know, there, there's a lot of other evidence out there which has demonstrated, you know, we've seen things like increases in protein synthesis, we're seeing changes in, you know, decreases in things like myostatin, all those other factors that are linked with growth and so on, but they're just more responses to what's happened. I think without the recruitment of the faster twitch fibers, you're probably not seeing similar changes there that you would expect. Mm-hmm. So I know, you, I know you've touched on a couple of recommendations based on what we can kind of confidently say this this is the thing to do based on the research. But in terms of like coaches out there who are working in football, rugby, whatever it may be, NBA, NFL, some some clear rec- not <laughs> as clear as it can be in terms of recommendations, um, pressures, exercises, all that kind of the stuff that people will really kind of take away and potentially have a little play around. Is there any, any of them recommendations that you can give? Yeah, sure. Um, Pressures-wise, as I said, if we're going to work with the lower body, I would recommend between 60 and 80% limb occlusive pressure. Um, even closer to the, the 80% seems to be where a lot of the evidence is coming in these days and a lot of the evidence is showing sort of real um, benefits Upper body, again, I think you can get away with slightly less. So anywhere between 40 and 60% is probably the the recommendations that we're doing. The other thing about pressure, which plays a, a really important role, is we've, we've recently completed a study where we looked at different body positions that we measure that limb occlusive pressure. And we demonstrated that when you move from, for example, um, a supine position to seated to standing that of course the pressure changes um, with those movements so we're now recommending that you would measure your limb occlusive pressure in the body position that you're going to do most of your exercise in because obviously if, you, if you're in a situation where you've measured say 60% limb occlusive pressure lying down and then you make them stand up to do some squats well actually it's maybe more the equivalent of 40% now and we know that's maybe not going to be as effective. So we're now suggesting, as I said, that we, we would recommend that you, you get into a, the body position that you're going to, to do the exercise, and that would be your, your, where you do the measurement of limb occlusive pressure. Load-wise, you know, we recommend 20 to 30%, one repetition max. The difficulty with that is, obviously, especially in a rehab setting, is you maybe aren't able to um, take a one repetition max off an individual. So... The set, the reps that we would use, we would do a four set um, scheme where we would basically do 75 reps in total. That would be the volume. And essentially it's a 30, 15, 15 and 15 reps with 30 seconds recovery in between each. And that's actually quite nice from a rehab perspective because what it does is it allows you to, to gauge pretty quickly where your athlete or where your client is at. So for example, if they're able to do the 75 reps at 80% limb occlusive pressure, for example, and they find it very easy, well, then we know with the load's too light and we, we know we need to increase it next time round. But if they're only able to do, say, the first 30 or, you know, halfway through the second set, you know, you've probably over um, overset the load slightly and you need to then sort of back off a little bit and, and change that for the next time round. So it only really takes one session to get good idea of where you're sitting with that particular client before you then have to change load and that means we don't have to do one rep max tests and so on in those settings so that 75 rep scheme is probably our go-to and what we use quite a lot and at, at approximately um, 30% one repetition max you should be able to get close to the 75 reps not saying every single person will do exactly 75 reps but you should be able to get quite close to it so, mm-hmm. so, so sorry go ahead go on, mate sorry you can't no go on mate yeah, so with regards to 
exercises then, you know, it's really, we're really open and it's really sort of world's oyster, so to speak. You know, there's, there's plenty that you can and can't do. Um, there's not really any exercise that wouldn't necessarily work. Um, we we would tend to, you know, especially in early stage rehab, we would tend to use a lot of, you know, fixed machines and so on for fixed range of motions and things like that. But, you know, we've done exercises with squats before. We've done, you know, lots of things. I think the, the big thing you have to just be wary of is you're inducing quite a lot of fatigue when we're doing these exercises. So, you know, we don't want to be doing it whenever we're, we don't want to make it into a bit of a balance skill when we're trying to, you know, we're extremely fatigued and then we're actually doing these, you know, silly exercises, which are actually going to make it harder for the individual to perform. So, um, they are, you know, there is lots that you can potentially do. It's just a matter of um, just thinking about, what you're trying to drive and i think the key thing to think about when you're taking your exercise selection is that most of the adaptations are going to happen below the cuff okay so the cuffs placed at the proximal end of the limb and most of the adaptations you're going to get are below but there are some potential um proximal gains to the cuff itself so for example if you're squatting or you're doing a leg press because of pre-fatigue within the quadriceps, then the glutes do take over. So there is evidence that the glutes will get bigger and get stronger, um, even during exercise like that, even though the cuff, you know, there's no restriction to, of blood flow to the glutes because it's restricting below that. Um, and there's evidence for that as well with things like bench press and shoulder press and that pull down in the upper body as well. So as long as uh, there is a re- also um, recruitment of muscle below the cuff when you're doing the exercise, then you can potentially get some gains above the cuff, but it really depends on the on the exercise section. Superb. And any particular resources that you would uh, send people to to learn more about what we've just been speaking about? Yes, there's there's lots of there's lots of articles, lots of review articles. I said um, I can we can put out our um, Google Scholar page and so on, which would you know give a lot of ideas of all the, the studies that we've currently done in, in our lab um, and what's currently going on. Um, there's, I'm just trying to think if there's anything else actually. That's Sorry, fine. no, there's probably not a great deal actually to be honest with you. Okay, mate. No, that's fine. What we'll do is, um, like I said before, I'll I'll get a link from you and and just guide people to the to the page on um, my website which will, will which will host this episode and that'll have a, a link and all the all the research can be on the back of that and people can dive in as, as much as as they want does that sound yeah, all right perfect yeah perfect are you a social media guy do you share your your, your work on on twitter and all that yeah, kind of stuff yeah i'm on twitter yeah okay and what's do you know you're I'm testing you now what's your twitter steven handle steven under slash pat and that's ph steven yeah, P H and M P A T T. Perfect. So all you once um, research goes live, you you put it on Twitter and everyone can have a little look. And um, have you got a research gate page yeah. as well? Yeah, I got a research gate page. Yes, also. So yeah, we put all we put everything out that way. Perfect. Oh, that sounds great, mate. Well, thank you very much for your insights. Um, it's been a while since I've actually had someone on who's kind of focused on one particular area. So I really, really enjoyed it. So I really appreciate you. Uh, coming on and sharing your expertise. No problem at all. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks, mate. Speak soon. Cheers, thanks. 
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Stephen. Big thanks to Stephen for giving up his time and sharing his expertise on blood flow restriction training and sharing such fantastic information with some great recommendations towards the end as well. So also big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, to I Measure You, Fatigue Science and St Mary's University for their continued support in sponsoring this episode today. So make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player. And if you did enjoy this episode, please, please share with your friends, family, dog, aunties, uncles, etc. And I will chat to you next week.